0: And let's start again. Yes. Okay, so just very quickly um, the private practice podcast cat is at the door. She's yowling. Do we let her in? Within a minute or two, she will find somewhere to sit and she will have a calm, cozy sleep, and that's all she will do. Well,
1: that's fine. Private
0: private practice podcast.
1: Hello and welcome back to Enjoying Solitude and Other People, which I have called Enjoy Yourself and Enjoy Other, which is the two parts of Chapter 8 of the Book of Flow, Season 5 of Private Practice Podcast. Did you get all that?
0: That's fantastic. So much information in one relatively concise sentence.
1: Last week we started... And I think didn't really finish to look at solitude. Even though the episode came to an end and we said goodbye as if that was the end of solitude and we were going to move on to other people this week, which is theoretically what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. We didn't really, apart from uh, telling people to meditate, we didn't really give much thought to the bit of the first part of the chapter that's called Taming Solitude.
0: Uh we see now. In the uh in the pre recording prep I didn't quite get what the hell you were going on about.
1: So last week we said if you're on your own, the most likely reason that people don't like being on their own is the psychic entropy, which is the, the, the internal voice which leads you to, according to Mikley Chitson Nicoly, it would have been it would have saved us probably about 20 minutes if I'd just read this quote last week instead of spending a long time describing yeah. the imaginary person on the platform. Uh, career disappointments, the failure of physical health, the usual slings and arrows of fate build up a mass of negative information that increasingly threatens peace of mind. That's what psychic entropy essentially is. It's the internal voice in chaos, catastrophizing about the future, not able to enjoy the present. Or catastrophizing about the future or the past or both. And so in that state, it's unpleasant being on your own. And you, Dan, asked me the vital question, so what do you do about it? And I imagine the listener was thinking, yeah, great question, I want to hear the answer. Mm -hmm. And what I did was spend the rest of the episode going into the three... Things that are in the book that you shouldn't do uh, mindlessly watch tv take drugs in the hope of, that the escape will give your life meaning and have anonymous sex just to as he says in quotes kill time and then briefly said something like oh meditation is good and then i told the story about going to the vna so it was an enjoyable enough episode but it didn't really answer the question
0: Mm. I mean, you did skirt around. If you describe what you shouldn't do, you can kind of make an inference that somewhere in the region of the opposite of that would be useful.
1: Not watching TV, not taking drugs and having meaningful sex (laughs) or not having any sex.
0: (laughs) Okay, maybe I'm wrong with that one. Let's see what this episode, um, whether it enlightens us just by talking through it.
1: Uh, well, I ran through everything we're going to talk about in this episode last week thinking that we were going to talk about it in the first part not knowing that there was going to be part two so I shall repeat myself and the keen listener will remember that I had to repeat myself several times last week even though I edited that out of the episode but they will remember the bit where I where you said to me you've already said that and I said, no I haven't because I'm going to edit out the previous times that I've said it mm-hmm. um, I'm now going to... So that everyone is aware that This is definitely repetition of something that was in last week's episode. You don't need to point out that I've already said this. Everyone knows that. No one is... We're all on the same page here. I am now repeating what we're going to talk about, or the topics that we're going to talk about this week. So we'll very quickly finish off last week's subject (laughs) with the story of Dorothy in the Wild that didn't make it in.
0: Take a breath. Take a breath for me, James. Take a breath. I'm getting very excited by the way you're talking, and I like to be calm when I'm doing this.
1: I'm also getting a little bit hot.
0: He's taking his clothes off. He's taking a breath. He's taking a moment to just to just bring down that mild mania he, he experiences when reading out a list.
1: So, taming solitude. To be honest, the meditation is the best thing you can possibly do and the best answer to that question. So if you just uh, get uh, some information about... Mindfulness and meditation—you're pretty much on the way, and uh, there's not much more I can really suggest. That's not me going on about how fabulous, fabulously successful my 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 previous year has been since Mm -hmm. I um, concentrated on my own solitude in France. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell tell, briefly tell the story of Dorothy in the Wild, and which is which is another form of taming solitude. So there will be another answer to what do you do. But mostly today we're talking about friends and family. I'm just going to read out the things again. Selfish genes, child abuse, attachment theory, utility of family, monogamy, how to flow as a family, Mm -hmm. longevity of relationships, the architecture and geography of family, such as the concept of suburbia and how that affects relationships.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Uh, Flow and Friends, so friends who don't provide complexity and those who do. And the most amusing page in the book, which I've called, like I said last week, How to Be a Funky Dude. And this is uh, if you're not very popular at school in the 80s, your awkward, embarrassing uncle, Mickley Chitson Mickley, has got some advice about how you should dye your hair and learn to talk street
0: brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait for that.
1: And there's no way we're going to get onto politics and the wider community, so don't let's not worry about that.
0: I have a feeling that at the moment politics and the wider community is such a depressing topic for so many people. I think we should just avoid it for today.
1: Can I just have 2 minutes on the subject though? Because this is the very first post Brexit private practice podcast. Yes, yes, it is. Yes. And that is not relevant. And how I voted or what I think is not particularly relevant. But
0: it, as ever,
1: as ever. But um, the general overwhelming sense of people's state of mind, order in consciousness, mental health, etc., being affected by emotional attachment towards the European Union is unbelievably strong. And all some of the stuff that is just. Crazy that's been written or p- or comments pe- friends have said and stuff about it that just sounds it sounds like some the person talking is mentally ill just for a few seconds and then they go back to being absolutely fine or okay, you don't like it when I use those wrong uh, unPC wouldn't be allowed in the NHS terminologies uh, A friend will make a comment about catastrophizing how Brexit means that the UK is just being shoveled into the toilet for the future, or um, alternatively, someone who is pro-Leave will be shrieking their head off in euphoria, we did it, we won, and all that sort of thing. These extreme reactions on either side.
0: Almost hysterical reactions. Yes,
1: hysteria. Mm -hmm. I see it as a an interesting phenomenon of mental health. Hysteria is the word. It hadn't occurred to me. You've just pointed it out. And it, it's crazy. And so not wanting to miss an opportunity to say the great divine James Hall has got it right and if only you were more like me, you'd be flowing and elevated above, like a, like a sort of like levitating guru um, living your life on a cloud of superiority like me. But uh, having gone from my... Initial position on the subject, which was to vote remain, but it could have been to vote leave because my opinion is irrelevant Irrelevant. to this podcast. Absolutely. Um, And (laughs) being quite um, angry at the result, but again, it could have been ecstatic at the result if it had been the other way around. I have moved to a totally neutral position where I am way more interested and engaged and politically aware, and I read and listen to more on the topic. And try and understand as much as possible. But there has just almost sort of like washed off me all emotional connection to uh, an enormous, complicated, authoritarian uh, body of unelected government, which does endless things with a whole load of people involved and a whole load of complications across a huge geographical area. The idea that I would feel like my soul is within that institution and it's just been shot, blood splattered everywhere by Nigel Farage and Anne Widdicombe and I'm in mourning, or that it would be the other way round. Like, they that, that institution strangles me and finally I'm released for, by the saints that are... Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and Anne is bizarre to me it's, it's just an interesting thing it's a, it's a change from one situation to another and the fact that I've gone through simultaneously I've gone through some personal development over the last year that has had a huge impact on my life whilst in Europe it has given me, well yeah I'm coming to that oh, it has, thank goodness it has given me the context of thinking actually that is really obviously what has previously given me dissatisfaction and now that I'm working on it has given me an enormous amount of satisfaction. It's It's not a government body or anything like that. So I cannot feel emotional attachment to the European Union or any political party or anything like that. I watch it with interest. I'm engaged. I think it's good to be engaged in politics. I think it's good to vote. I think democracy is important and all that. But I was not crying at 11 o'clock for the moment of Brexit, holding a vigil with candles and singing "Old Lang Syne just because I voted Remain. Um, and also, it is one of the greatest things, the, the, just the Brexit in itself, the fact that there was the referendum, well, I suppose and the fact that Leave won, is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me in my life because it prompted me to do the thing that I'd always wanted to do but never had the courage to do, which was to just go out and live in France and see what it was like. I made a reckless decision, made a success of it, realised that I don't need to safely uh, cotton wool myself into a secure full-time job with savings in order to feel like everything is okay. I can just spend the savings, have no security, make reckless decisions, be a teacher with no experience or qualifications and have the responsibility to make it work. Otherwise, I will just end up with no money sleeping on the streets of Paris. And not only that, but finding it to be a thoroughly life-affirming flow experience that also gave me the chance to dive into my subconscious and learn things about myself that are incredibly useful under the wonderful Blue skies of Montpellier with the fantastic food and landscape and people and meeting new friends and all this. Thank you, Brexit. Right. Now,
0: how does... what? How,
1: how, what? That's got nothing to do with the subject today. It's only because we happen to be recording two days after a uh, landmark in... Uh,
0: oh, I see. So that was like a public service announcement for... From James Hall, for James Hall.
1: But it's relevant because all I see in people's reactions whether to Brexit, whether it's on the news or friends talking, is, as you just said, hysteria.
0: Mm. But it seems like everything uh, hasn't... Not everything, it might be a bit hysterical itself, but so much has this intense element of hysterical reaction at the minute. Um, it, 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 you know if you, if you watch the news the coronavirus this week it's utterly ridiculous you know that we we know that over half a million people a year die from flu yeah well we've got a thousand people dying from coronavirus what's but what, it, it's me non-stop on the news they're interviewing people who can't leave certain places in china who are, who are in their houses under quarantine you know for good reason like safety you know but it, it, they're they're wasting hundreds of hours of our time talking about this thing and ramping up the excitement and you know what happened with swine flu and bird flu and SARS not very much
1: shall we look at Dorothy in the wild why not let's look at Dorothy in the wild bear in mind we're still on the uh we're still under the umbrella of last week's episode. We'll move on to the actual episode. after We've got Brexit out the way, we've got diseases out the way, we'll get Dorothy out the way, and then we'll move on to the subject of this week's episode. But, um, Under Taming Solitude, there's a Francis Bacon quote, whosoever is delighted in solitude, goes the old saying, is either a wild beast or a god. Obviously, You can tell which I think I am. Yes, we know. Um, And the example of someone who has achieved flow uh, without the supports of civilised life, without other people, without jobs, theatres, restaurants, libraries, or anything like that to channel attention, either through distraction or as an activity, is Dorothy. Like other people who live alone in the wilderness... Dorothy has tried to personalise her surroundings to an uncommon degree. So she lives in a very remote part of either northern America or Canada. Mm-hmm. She, so she's moved, I think, from... New Oh, yes, a tiny island in the lonely region of lakes and forests of northern Minnesota along the Canadian border. Sounds lovely. Uh, I think she's moved from New York, but anyway, a big east coast city. Which is a concrete jungle. Yes. Um, so she has, she has personalised her surroundings... Flower tubs, garden gnomes, discarded tools all over the ground. Most trees have signs nailed to them, filled with uh, rhymes, corny jokes, cartoons, etc. that point to things. To an an urban visitor, the island is the epitome of kitsch. But as extensions of Dorothy's taste, this junk, in adverted commas creates a familiar environment where her mind can be at ease. In the midst of untamed nature, she has introduced her own idiosyncratic style, her own civilization. Inside, her favourite objects recall Dorothy's goals. She has stamped her preferences on chaos. So she has ordered nature... I don't know how you feel about that. Do you think it's slightly obsessive-compulsive and ordering nature is a bit like me trying to organise the beach in Brighton and I can't put every pebble in the, the slot that I think... Are picked... you
0: sure she's tried to order nature? Hasn't she tried to, uh, you know, put some order on her environment? Not nature as such. You know, she's,
1: yeah, she's, it's just her immediate surroundings. Her environment her rather plot. than nature. Yeah, okay. Yeah,
0: OK, she's, she's decorated... <laughs> I mean, well, that's weird about that. Dorothy's
1: decorated a forest. OK. Well, that is given as an example of taming solitude to create order in your environment. So lovely Dorothy lives alone. Yes, Lo- miles from anywhere. Miles from anywhere. So she's, she's out
0: there. She's got the, sol- the solitude is there.
1: Literally no one except it says in the summer months some fishermen pass by and they stop to have a cup of tea and a natter and then they carry on. And flow researchers. Canoeing up to
0: Dorothy's front door. Following the twee signs with gnomes. This way to Dorothy. Um, You can't see this, listener, but I'm actually making canoe paddling manoeuvres as I head towards Dorothy. Um, And she's, she's found a little corner of the world and... She entertains herself and amuses herself and creates her flow, not unlike um, Blue Collar Joe. And she makes an environment that is beautiful and warm and welcoming to her, and that's how she
1: fills her time. I think there is a balance required. She has <laughs> she has ordered her environment, but it's not enough to either order your mind or your environment and not the other. I think both of them need to be ordered to have calmness in solitude. So if you uh, if you put your house in order, as Jordan Peterson likes to call it, and you um, just whatever you do, you create a nice home so it doesn't have to be in the wilderness with gnomes.
0: Oh, let's let, what about here, James? The private practice, the private practice, the private practice, uh, practice uh, live in studios. Um, well, a few weeks ago, uh, I don't know if it was the last episode or the week before, you told me that the house was chaotic and so therefore was my mind.
1: I do feel like, to some extent, a little bit of your chaos represents your internal chaos, but I also think that a lot of your ordering of that chaos, I'm looking at shelves with things that are colour-coded, very neatly arranged, very thoughtfully placed so that if, for example, you're making coffee, you want the coffee beans, you want the mug, you want the teaspoon they're all where they should be at eye level within a proximity of the coffee machine, nicely presented, not a, a, a jumbly mess that looks like you can't be bothered with, with life in general. It looks like you've carefully thought about your home as a nice place that you want to be, yet at the same time you have so much stuff that it's almost impossible to find an available surface to put something down because every surface, n- no square centimetre is left uncovered for more than a few nanoseconds because Mm -hmm. as soon as you see it you'll put some of your stuff there and make it feel like oh it's so overwhelming that there's just all this stuff and i don't know how to even begin to so there's an there's a there's a there's a bit of both i think that you have a lot of stuff which represents uh Some disorder in your mind whereby you start lots of projects and don't prioritise and don't complete them and don't form, prioritise is the key word. But at the same time, some of the things you do, you're in total control of ordering them so that they work and are something that enriches your life. So I think you're halfway there. Well, I'm going to give you um, a smiley face, but not a gold star on okay. your report card. Okay. Whereas I have obviously got it all right. So, uh,
0: Sorry, do you have your doors on your cupboard? <laughs> do you have doors on your cupboard, or, or are the cupboard doors next to your cupboard? Because your ordered, controlled, perfect mind is incapable of putting
1: doors on a cupboard? I tried to put the doors on the cupboard and I'm not entirely sure how the mechanism works. So Mm -hmm. um, having successfully taken the doors off, as you asked me to, to lift it up the stairs. Mm -hmm. um, But I don't think we should bring our domestic (laughs) issues (laughs) to this podcast now that we live together. Well, if you're going to bring
0: chaos into it, sometimes chaos will be brought back to
1: you. Okay. But obviously I am perfect and... I'm not perfect. What I'm, what I'm getting at is that if you, get your, if you have a nice house and you, just, you take care of what you have and how it looks and how it works, but you still have inner turmoil in your mind, you're not going to tame solitude just by having nice mugs neatly colour-coded on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Equally, if you live in total chaos... And you just sit in the middle of it meditating. It it does make a lot of sense to order the house before you start meditating, because otherwise you're just taking the chaos around you and trying to sort yeah, it out. Yeah.
0: They they say, don't they, with meditation? And of course, there's you know a whole host of different ways to meditate and different um, techniques and different intensities and and you know various. Religious and spiritual scholars would talk about meditation in a completely different way that is not quite so accessible to the everyday man uh, or me. Um, uh, but, but when we're talking about meditation, they are, when you look at any kind of system, they almost always say, find yourself
1: a quiet calm, peaceful place that you enjoy sitting? Oh, it's funny you say that because the only one I listen to is Sam Harris and he says that you should be... I don't know if there's so much judgment as is loaded in the word should, but you you can meditate next to a building site with a pneumatic drill or with uh, neighbours having sex in the next room because the idea is that the the point of meditation is to recognise the thoughts coming to your head, to control your breathing, to keep still, to not get not let your thoughts uh escalate into emotions and he's saying that i mean i mean i imagine if if you're if you're in total chaos of noise and action all around you it would make it very difficult and he certainly says sit down it's best to be upright in a chair or cross-legged not lying down or something like that um there, there, there is. You need some control over your environment, but he does say that you sh- that, that it's possible to meditate with noise in the background, or you, you don't need to think. Oh well, how can I, how can I get rid of my psychic entropy when my irritating neighbour is having noisy tantric sex on the other side of the thin wall that wasn't meant to separate two buildings but because London housing is such a nightmare I have to live here Mm -hmm. oh I'm never going to get rid of my psychic entropy now and it's the neighbour's fault it's not mine I can blame the neighbour for all my problems and I'm just gonna etc.
0: Yeah but at the same time if we're talking meditation 101 as the Americans like to say you probably do want to put yourself in an environment to learn the skills that it would take to Uh, either um, dull down, drown out, or even incorporate the sounds of tantric. I think
1: that's key. You have to incorporate the sounds of the tantric sex. You can't ignore them, deny them, dull them, drown them out. You have to think, I can hear tantric sex. It is irritating. That is an emotion. I'm not going to let myself get carried away with irritation right now because I'm meditating.
0: Yes, but for someone who was brand new to meditation, that would be a huge obstacle, you know, realistically, you want to put yourself in the most peaceful environment and the most organised and the most calm and the most aesthetically pleasing.
1: So if we look at that flow diagram, if you match your abilities with your challenge, if you've never meditated before, you need to find a calm, peaceful, quiet, uncluttered space where you sit down with your eyes shut and just clearly start to meditate with nothing much more than counting your breaths and noticing your thoughts. And then as you progress up that ladder, Mm -hmm. you can actively barge into your neighbour's house when you know they're having sex and see if you can actually meditate at the end of the bed, Mm -hmm. watching it and hearing it all and feeling it all slopping around you.
0: Yeah, or or potentially, you know, maybe a better example would be to be able to meditate on a crowded train, which is somewhere that would be really useful to be able to use those meditative techniques, because I'm sure I'm not the only one that finds that very challenging.
1: So that's what we should have said last week. Let's move on to the subject of this week's episode. Topic over, (laughs) moving on, says James. I do have to be a bit practical. We have been talking for half an hour and we're, have, not, even, have we, we're not Have we? Have <laughs> we been talking for
0: half an hour?
1: I have been talking for half an hour. Dan, what do you think about um, family? <laughs> wow. I mean, consummate
0: professional. Any intro to... Any intro to this part of the conversation? Any intro to this part of the chapter? Any? Well, it's a little on. quote, James. You love a good quote. Okay,
1: so in between Taming Solitude and the next section that we're moving on to now, flow and the Family, rather than being as abrupt as I just made it, mm-hmm. there is a page, 175, which I have called the Transcendence page. Let's see if that page has some kind of transition so that we don't just change gear. Uh, I'm distracted because... I was in a car with Dan today on the road for the first time as opposed to just someone's driveway in France and we discussed his anxiety to do with driving and now I just want to move on from any metaphors to do with (laughs) driving before we go, before we awkwardly reverse up an irrelevant alley. (laughs)
0: You know I made you get out of the car before I parked? Yeah. It was odd because you left and I I did a perfect reverse park into the spot. Got out of the car, super pleased with myself, looked up at the wall and it's the only disabled parking spot on the estate. So I had to move the car.
1: So, lifestyles built on pleasure survive only in symbiosis with complex cultures based on hard work and enjoyment but when the culture is no longer able or willing to support unproductive hedonists those addicted to pleasure lacking skills and discipline and therefore unable to fend for themselves find themselves lost and helpless so that's kind of that's kind of like a uh, the, the superego telling you that you need to tame your mind in solitude because otherwise you're at the mercy of advertising and work and all the other distractions and demands of busy city life.
0: Sorry, would you read the quote again, please?
1: Lifestyles built on pleasure. So Netflix, casual sex... Uh, alcohol alcohol and cocaine at the fancy sort of like high-flying executive strip club where you pay a fortune and have an evening of hedonism every single friday night and convince yourself that you don't have a hangover and you're super productive and multitasking at 6 a.m the following morning after two hours sleep that kind of pleasure they survive only in symbiosis with complex cultures based on hard work and enjoyment so work hard play hard London, New York-type, modern, globalised city environments. I would include Barcelona in that as cities that I'm familiar so with. So you're
0: talking about, like, uh, the, the, you can only have people who, who are pretty much hedonists in a diverse and complex society. You, they, they, when, it's, when, there's, when there's not that huge diversity, you, you aren't able to have those kind of people.
1: Well, I don't think Dorothy could be a hedonist on her island,
0: Okay.
1: Is what he's saying. Um, When the culture is no longer able or willing to support unproductive hedonists, so Dorothy's Island, those addicted to pleasure, lacking skills and discipline, and therefore unable to fend for themselves, find themselves lost and helpless. So Dorothy needs discipline, internal discipline over her psychic entropy. in order to be able to create order both in her mind and on her trees.
0: Okay. Where's he going with this? I'm a bit confused. What's, this, what's his example of this society? Because I don't know that Dorothy's a great example of a society. In fact, if anything, she's removed herself from society.
1: Yes, but that's so that's extreme solitude. So coping with solitude in London, for example, would be. Independence of, what would you say, independence of attitude, not being sucked into the work culture of spending too many hours at your job, not being sucked into the drinking culture of getting drunk every night of the week, not being sucked into the Netflix culture of keeping up with every single season of everything, not being sucked into the plenty of fish in the sea, look at my app saying that there are a thousand sexual partners in this huge city. I'm going to make my way through all of them. Uh, hopefully not miss out on that because that's why I came to the big city anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when you get sucked into all of that... <laughs> yes. Um, you are at the mercy of all the other external controls what were you saying about internal and external locus of control yes not locusts cuz every time you say that i think of swarming locusts no
0: locus like a an xy axis they're also called locus aren't they
1: well as as a city like london can easily control you with an external locus perhaps why not cuz it's it's
0: not actually controlling you it hasn't it's having an impact it's having an effect but the the whole book that we're sort of engaging in is talking about you actually having the power to be in charge so it's about whether you decide whether you whether you can focus whether you can see it from that point of view
1: okay so you come to London and you get a new job and everyone goes out for drinks most nights and most people get very drunk they Mm -hmm. don't just have a drink um Everyone talks about what they're watching on Netflix and makes you feel like it's fantastic and you really have something to gain from watching these series because everyone else watches them and they all like them. There are apps telling you that there are thousands of potential sexual partners in your city, so don't be a boring old fuddy-duddy Christian who just finds a nice partner to settle down with in marriage. Be a modern millennial sexually liberated uh, yeah, there's pressure. Leviathan penis. <laughs> <laughs> there is pressure
0: on you know people to behave in a certain way. There, there are. There's advertising. There's marketing. There's there's pressure. There's there's um there's basically influence. there's money to
1: be made out of your susceptibility to the loc locusts. You, you have given the control to an external locust, and you are not in control of your own mm. life.
0: Yeah, but there. Uh, yes. But but you have the choice. You have the choice to Dorothize yourself. There are influences this, on you. There is pressure on you, yeah, but you do not necessarily... So, for example, I, I see the Vodafone advert. I see the EE advert. I see the whatever. Uh, and I can either choose to go, oh, yes, I do need a new mobile phone. Or I can choose to say, no, my old mobile phone's fine.
1: Do you think that you stop and take that time and that process for absolutely every message that is... Of course I don't. Do you think you do? I don't know if it's possible to. Maybe. maybe I don't... It's a good question.
0: It is a good question. And I think one of the things you need to think about is Dorothy chose to remove herself, you know, I'm making an assumption here, from all of that, so that she has as much control as she possibly can have. Because no doubt she probably still has to pay tax or probably still has to pay insurance, probably still has to engage in that kind of society and not be 100% off-grid, although I know there are some people who are pretty much 100% off-grid in the Western world. But she is still a part of that system but doing everything she can to remove herself from that power and influence of you know, big business and peer pressure. Um, But it's very, very difficult if you live in a city like London to not.
1: Yeah, so I think what... I mean, is
0: Game of Thrones actually any fucking good? Not really.
1: (laughs) I think the useful conclusion to this bit of the conversation that I think should have been the conclusion to last week's episode is that there is a lot of personal responsibility required if you live in one of these sort of like generic globalised cities like... London, Barcelona, New York that I just listed. The megalopolises. The megalopolises in the The Western world. The megalopoli. And megalopoli in other parts of the world that I'm not as familiar with. Then there is, for, for your own internal solitude, calmness, ordering of thoughts, flow, essentially, there is totally the responsibility to take as much control as possible to get as much benefit. Because the less control you have the more susceptible you are to feeling like you've got to have sex with everything with a pulse, otherwise fear of missing out and everyone else has got a better sex life than you. And the
0: right thing to do is spend your time watching the latest box set and watching everything and being up to date and having the new iPhone X
1: 12. And you have to work ridiculously long hours because everyone else does and that's the only way you'll get anywhere with your career and get any kind of, uh, feeling of being someone as opposed to a, a forgotten, irrelevant nobody in this big city. And the only way that you're ever really going to be happy
0: is if you make more money than you possibly could make. Yes. Whew, depressing.
1: So you don't have to be Dorothy and just give up all of that. No. You can flow your way to being a chief executive of some dreary company and you can have lots of... Um, sex outside of relationships and you can watch some tv and you can drink some delicious french chablis maybe a little bit too much one night who knows but so that's so that's where i'm i don't know if i'm having just said all that that wasn't actually me describing myself until we got to the chablis
0: weird right
1: but you can do that as long as there is enough of the internal locus of control to feel like you're not at the mercy of all these things and if all of that is taken away from you and you were put in Dorothy's position, you could survive.
0: Yes. Right. Good.
1: End of part one. That's, where right? <laughs> end That's of part one. exactly where we should have got to at the end of last week's episode. Gosh. and
0: I wonder why. What was it that was filling up the space and the airwaves last week that we didn't get anywhere near that?
1: So, unsurprisingly, thematically, uh, or... Um, in terms of ideas, everything to do with the self is also relevant to the family. You can enjoy spending time with family or it can provide you with anxiety. And guess who is responsible for making it a success? You, the individual. That's the theme of the book. You are in control of ordering your own consciousness.
0: And what does it say? What what um, examples does it give there? Um, because obviously there's... You know as a child, for example, you aren't really in that position of power or control. Um, and although children try to spend you know most of their time finding ways to enjoy flow, I guess really, you know, whether it's like painting or drawing or playing outdoors or riding a bike, learning to ride it better without stabilizers, you know l- looking in a pond and getting excited by nature, you know they're they're more open to the flow but they are they do have a strong external locus of control in terms of what they're feeling inside because they're parents or or their lack of parenting, so what does it say about family there?
1: Oh, you mean in terms of how children well i don't i'm not I don't think anyone's expecting children to be able to take full control of consciousness and successfully meditate and be able to flow and have total person- i mean that comes with. Uh, growing up that takes the whole process of going through your teenage years and becoming an adult so flow is an adult 18 rated activity 18 although I think you can you can certainly you can definitely introduce children to meditating you can definitely introduce responsibility to children at all stages right from potty training through to the day that they are first able to vote or uh, drive a car or uh, do a job or something you can Introduce or or get into a relationship. You can introduce responsibility uh, all 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 the way through, but for as long as they are children, you can't expect them to just flow, come gushing out of the vagina and immediately. What some? Let's introduce some naff business talk. Hit the ground flowing.
0: Right, brilliant. Okay. (laughs) No, I, I, that's yeah, I, I, I'm sure, yeah, okay.
1: So it's not really about how children can flow or how grandma can flow, as opposed to how you can flow and how your friends can flow. Mm-hmm. It's about how you flow with ch- with a family. Y- yes, thank you, James. Well, one obstacle to that is child abuse. Mickley says, Child abuse and incestuous sexual molestation, once thought to be rare deviations from the norm, apparently occur much more often than anyone had previously suspected.
0: Let's try and say that again without it sounding sort of facetious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to read it? I've underlined it, starting from there. Child abuse and incestuous sexual
0: molestation once thought to be rare deviations from the norm, apparently occur much more than anyone had previously suspected. What is it that you want to talk about? Because to me it's just the the, the largest obstacle to adult flow that anyone could experience. And the way that that affects uh, uh, the development of your consciousness, the development of your identity, the development of yourself is... I mean, it's unique to each person, but it's almost undefinable. It doesn't have boundaries. Someone can become so unwell from child abuse or neglect that their entire adult personality is affected. If we look at examples like borderline personality disorder, emotionally unstable personality disorder, the trauma of those experiences will inevitably last a lifetime and might never be... Given the kind of uh, treatment or support or any effective kind of care in order to reverse the damage that's done. So, in terms of everything that we're talking about, and I think previous uh, listener feedback, which was picking us up on um, knowing nothing about narrativization, what the hell was it that we don't know? Habitus and narrativization. Habitus and narrativization, yeah, would, would suggest that we can gloss over this topic and not talk about the idea that actually there are huge obstacles to flow that begin in childhood. I have no idea what our listeners um
1: oh I see what you're saying. You know I don't agree that they are they are obstacles to flow okay, but they are not impossibly high walls and mountains where it's absolutely beyond comprehension that you could get over the other side. They are exactly that they are obstacles to flow. So you climb over them to get to flow.
0: Yeah, uh, I think a a lot of people would disagree with you there. Um, And I think probably our listener uh, and his feedback would be be screaming at his uh, headphones right now.
1: But all of this is to do with a scale of probability. So if you were sexually abused as a child, and let's throw in some social class disadvantage as well. It, do you have a 0% possibility of achieving a flow state? Absu- in... No, absolutely not. And there, are some well, there you go. Oh, so some... that is the end of my argument.
0: Yes, but what you have to understand is that there's a, a, a large percentage of traumatised people, whether it's child abuse or neglect or trauma that happens later on, whose entire mental psychic landscape is taken up with trying to manage... The everyday and the and the the kind of the privilege of flow is nowhere near
1: accessible to them without huge amounts of support. Okay, so yes, that is the first thing that you need to do is to overcome trauma. You can't. But so that's just that's okay. So in terms of the flow diagram, matching your challenge and your ability, if you are unable to achieve anything until you've overcome some trauma or come to terms with the trauma being the driver behind your patterns of behavior and your uh, mental state, then you are at the bottom of that ability ladder. ladder. You need to overcome the trauma before you move on to more complex flow activities.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think what, I think there's something in your naivety about how difficult that is, or also even in recognizing that the flow experience is accessible okay to so one of these we talked about this in the trauma examples, episode, but
1: but i I, I can own so therefore I can only talk from my own experience. I do not know what someone else's trauma is like, but just in terms of the the model of this process okay. of what you're talking about mm-hmm. this is exactly what I did last year I sat in a room in Montpellier and I decided to try and work out where bad patterns of behavior came from in my childhood and my background and look back and try and work out uh, the times in the past where I've been depressed or where I've uh, had problems trying to understand where all that comes from and I was just doing it on my own not in controlled psychoanalysis with an expert but on my own I managed to make enough progress that it I felt like it was helpful and I felt like I was making some progress. And it was after that, that you gave me the flow book and that started to give me some practical things to actually do as, as the next thing. I didn't do it the other way around. I didn't do it the wrong way around. Okay. So I can say from experience, even though I was not coming from the experience of child abuse and abject poverty I can still say with some experience that it is necessary to deal with aspects of your behavior in the past aspects of your core beliefs personality childhood development things like that before you start walking for a flow activity or making rainbow fountains or putting gnomes on your remote island
0: yeah absolutely yeah and and I mean I think that's fair to say I just wanted to open up that part of the the uh conversation and and recognize that it can be way more challenging for some groups of people anyway so what what did older uh uh, mickley chicks and mickley say because he talked about child abuse he gave us a one-line quote but what what was his suggestion there because was he talking about that getting in the way of flow i'm guessing he was
1: He's talking about quality of life depending to a large extent on how well a person succeeds in making the interaction with his with his or her relatives enjoyable. And so, yes, child abuse is an example of an obstruction to enjoying life.
0: Well, we'll all agree on that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's the least controversial thing I've said in quite a long time.
0: Yeah, so, so enjoying family, though. Like, so, you know, the classic that comes to mind for me is this, like... <laughs> Uh, and i'm not saying that christmas is not difficult for people because christmas can be very difficult for people and we i think we might have even mentioned it in the christmas special but the you know the the the, the general tosh that people talk about the, the the lack of effort that people go to to actually enjoy time with each other whereas the amount they buy into the commercialization of christmas rather than the enjoyment of family time or the enjoyment of spending time with you know, friends and family. I think I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of work to be done in the Western world on, you know, how to enjoy time with each other.
1: OK, so what I want to do now is have the selfish conversation. The other evening your friend was here and I was presenting my... my well, it's not my view. I mean, Richard Dawkins has written a book about it called The Selfish Gene, which I think you have read and I know that I have not read. But my assumption, I will have to read this book and see how closely it matches my views on hum on on everything every human ever does being selfish no matter how even if you uh donate all your uh time and money and resources and effort and everything to saving the donkeys or <laughs> some kind of charitable uh, pursuit i was going to say ending world poverty but then i decided to comically involve donkeys even if you uh, altruistic is that the word yeah to all common senses of recognition present yourself as a purely altruistic selfless individual mm-hmm. never doing anything um obviously for the self always doing something assumed altruistic, to help others. Mm-hmm. I, st- I still believe that's a selfish life.
0: Like the secondary gain of the self-indulgent enjoyment of how good you are.
1: I think we're going to have to come on to free will. I don't know if we should have an episode on free will, but I think it's relevant to all of this because I don't believe that you have genuine free will, as it's understood, to make all the decisions you make. I think every decision I make... Is an argument between the, the ego and the superego, and they and have that biological
0: drive that you have to get what you want,
1: yeah. So they have they, they, they are essentially working for the genes that require me to survive mm-hmm. and thrive mm-hmm. and reproduce, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, and leave a legacy, <laughs> which I'm not. Uh, I don't know, that Maybe that maybe that's what my phobia of blood represents ever since the, the phobia episode I'm desperately trying to work out what it represents and maybe it's denial of the fact that I'm I'm repressing my biological uh, urges to reproduce mm.
0: or something to do with your mother something you saw when you were young
1: you just wanted to shoehorn that into the conversation excellent and so, so back to the book slightly. The, the, chat, the family chapter is to do with the genetics of human beings being more successful at survival in groups than solely as individuals. So, most of what we talk about in this um, podcast is to do with the personal responsibility of taking control of your mind and your thoughts so that you don't let yourself descend into depression, anxiety, all the rest of it, understanding where you come from in terms of your traumas and core beliefs and how that determines uh, your your mental health in the present and your catastrophizing of the future or distress about the past or whatever. That's personal responsibility, but I don't believe in absolute extreme individualism like i'm just a totally self-facilitating
0: self-sufficient
1: self-sufficient node and i don't need anyone Mm. because obviously i do all human activity is somehow connected to groups even if it's even if you live in total solitude i'm trying to think how dorothy is reliant on groups because but we don't need to necessarily dwell on the extreme example. I'm guessing she doesn't
0: farm all of her own food.
1: Yes, she probably sources some things from other people. Maybe she does have a phone. Maybe some of the tools that she uses in her garden have been made by someone else, or something like that. My guess would be they have, yeah. So, no one one is purely an island. No one is an island. Especially, so forget Dorothy and all these extreme examples from it. If you live in a city, um, you are part of a a network of interacting human beings. You are. And so so we're all, I believe, um, lacking in some of the free will that is commonly assigned to us in terms of the the belief that we choose what happens, we choose what we do in in life. I use the simple example of buying a yoghurt from a a supermarket. Mm. You you have maybe 200 yoghurts on the shelf, or at least you do in France, maybe 20 20 yoghurts on the shelf in London, Mm -hmm. and you can buy any of those yoghurts. There's never a case where you pick up one of the yoghurts and suddenly out of nowhere a security guard jumps out and says, "Uh, no, that's illegal, if you'll just put that back on the shelf. Sir put, that b- Sir, put that back on the sh- Right, pin you to the ground, taking you off to the death camps because you picked the illegal yoghurt that you're not allowed. That situation doesn't occur, so you can buy any of the yoghurts. Uh-huh. I do not believe that there is some kind of divine free will and I just choose the yoghurt. I think it's more or less inevitable. But you like that yoghurt. You're buying it because you like it. It's it's the Daniel Kahneman type one or two, whichever is the fast one, yeah. um, form of thinking mm-hmm. that comes from the mysterious part of your brain that you don't think about that that does things for your survival. The god in your brain that is it, the thing that is in control. You have no tangible concept of that thing making decisions for you, i.e., not free will. The the god of your brain that says, this is the yogurt that most closely aligns your prerogative in life. So even though you have a superficial choice, it's not a choice, that one. That is the yogurt that you will buy. And so the whole... Uh, charade of looking at all the yogurts and thinking, oh, do I feel like caramel tonight? Mm-mm-mm. Madagascan vanilla, that sounds nice. Oh, that one looks pretty. Oh, this is new. I haven't tried that one before. I wonder what that. Oh, Sheila said she likes that one. That is just a charade. The God in your brain has chosen the one that most closely fits your core beliefs, your desires, your prerogative, whatever it is. And that is the yogurt that you buy.
0: Your predetermined drive. Yes. Or a yogurt would be differentiated by I don't know if you're a religious, God, or if you're like science based your genetics, and th- and whether it was fudge or caramel would be predetermined as to which one you're going to get, and you don't have any choice in whether you pick up fudge, caramel, or passion fruit. You have nailed but it. But you haven't explained any reason why passion fruit would be wanted by God
1: or your, your, your genetics. Because... More
0: than the, the... There's no explanation there.
1: You just have no choice. Because your genetics programme you to seek pleasure, for example.
0: I vote we move on. But- I vote and I've got two hands. <laughs> we were always going to move on. <laughs> Both hands are in the air. This was never going to go any further. I'm just trying to work out whether I am going to kill you or not. And sadly, I don't have the choice. So if you die, it wasn't me, governor.
1: I don't believe in free will, but I will happily um, be subordinate to your wishes. And quick quick aside, though. I am ordering Chinese tonight. What do you want? <laughs> I don't know right now, and I'm not answering the question. Uh, so what? Child abuse, attachment theory. It's so like utility of family comes into... <laughs> comes into... Um, I mean, I could boil it down to: we do better off in groups, and we're genetically programmed to have attachments to family because we're more likely to survive if we work together as a family. Mm. Um, and you can do nothing about it anyway,
0: because you know
1: all your, cho- <laughs> all your choices have been taken away. And also, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that the fact that I, the fact that everything, I, I maybe I I, should, I really should have thought about this more before. But, but possibly the Daniel Kahneman type one process is always involves a lack of free will. And the type two, I still think that no 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 no. I still think I, no. I still think that you are genetically programmed to if you could be the God in your head that has total control of your mind that's not scientific obviously but i don't know how i I don't understand neurology to the extent that i can lay out consciousness in an easily understandable form no one does so let so i'm i'm using metaphor i'm pretending there's a god in your brain that Uh, that, brain god i'm pretending there is a brain god if you let's call him james yes if you knew uh if you could be in 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 the head of the god in your head. That's like Russian dolls. The infinite brains inside brains inside, <laughs> brains, inside brains, inside yes. brains. If you could finally get to the tiniest brain that is actually controlling everything, the tiniest Russian doll in the core of, a, of it all, you would know that even the type 2 thinking, the law is laid down. There is genetic programming that says, this is your prerogative in life, survival, and therefore you feel like you're making a decision, but actually... If you have two decisions, one of them is more likely to benefit you than the other one. Therefore, you will always make that decision because you are nothing but a selfish organism trying to survive. And I don't find that dispiriting. I don't feel like I'm sort of like that makes me dead inside and... Because everything we talk about is having personal responsibility. Yeah. I don't I don't feel like the the lack of free will means I should just give up and sit and watch TV and drink myself into a stupor and not care because there's no such thing as free will. I don't find that discomforting. I find it more maybe it's the the autiste in me, but I find it more comforting to think of humans as just survival robots, pre-programmed, like predictable than to think of us as some sort of mysterious thing with a soul and every, every in- human being is uh, uniquely individual and anything could happen and, and all this. I think that it is more comforting to me to think of human beings as just survival robots and that we have the cognitive ability to elevate ourselves beyond base survival robots.
0: Which is where free will comes in.
1: Maybe. Yes. I don't necessarily, I don't know that I would call it free will, I think. But i don't we don't need to care we did say that we were genetically determined to not continue that thread of the conversation, but I, so I, it 's not a case of just you know who cares your whole life your whole destiny is already written, so who cares
0: and do you know what I do think we should go back to one of your key points was that maybe this is another episode entirely
1: okay yeah um but uh to, to do with family, you work better together nice I think that's I think we and then there's the monogamy. He comes back to monogamy. We looked at this in the previous episode, whereby monogamy as a construct is both a flow activity and, he says, Cicero once wrote... (laughs) Once wrote that to be completely free, one must become a slave to a set of laws... In other words, accepting limitations is liberating. For example, by making up one's mind to invest psychic energy exclusively in a monogamous marriage, regardless of any problems, obstacles or more attractive options that may come along later, one is freed of the constant pressure of trying to maximise emotional returns. Mm, Interesting, yeah. I'm not going to move on, I'm going to let you respond to that. And if you don't, I'm going to give you an accusatory look. Oh, you're just not going to respond to that because that's what you've shoveled at me before. I'm going to shovel it back.
0: Well, I think that probably, you know, people talk about the one, don't they? And I don't really believe that there's one person who you should end up with um, in terms of a monogamous relationship. But I do think... That there is a choice at a certain point in a relationship as to whether you're going to commit to that person, and once you have committed to that person, although you know your eye might wander and you might see other people who are attractive and you know interesting, or you might flirt with a fantasy idea of being with them rather than your partner. Once you have committed truly to that person, um, up to the point that you know you aren't controlling their behaviour and what they do. When you then say, I'm going to be with this person f- forever, a lot of freedom is gained because you can then get on with everything that you wanted to do with your life, with your partner, with your buddy, with that person. And I think that that's quite true. Old oh, sister, I got it right. Is that a good enough answer for you, James?
1: That's fantastic, Yeah, Thanks, mate, good. You know, I said last week that psychic entropy is the, just the neutral state of all brains. And you said, really, is it for everyone?
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: said, well, that's what it says in the book. He also says that for groups. He says, uh, it's worth stressing that entropy is the basic condition of group life, just as it is of personal experience. So unless the partners invest psychic energy in the relationship, conflicts are inevitable simply because each individual has goals that are to a certain extent divergent from those of all other members of the family without good lines of communication the distortions will become amplified until the relationship falls apart
0: yeah and i think you can definitely see that in work teams quite regularly that would be a very accessible example to many people um and I I'm not saying that I'm elevated to any point, but I often try and stand back from the dynamic. And perhaps working in mental health, it's easier because you're taught about these kind of group dynamics from day one of train training. But you you look at what's happening what are people thinking what they're holding on to what emotions are they bring to the team how are they consciously or unconsciously manipulating others around them to um, agree with them about certain things how are cliques being formed how are splits happening who is using those splits to to push a team or a, a program or or, or, a, or a, um, a delivery of service in a certain way and how you work with that, and you'll also see really healthy teams where people are able to openly argue and debate and challenge and change and accept fault and explore alternate options. And those are the kind of teams, of course, that are most fun and most rewarding to work in, as long as you yourself are able to engage in that. But uh, I think it was, I mean, it's either Nietzsche or Jung who said in the individual madness and we use that very broadly in the individual madness is the exception and in the group madness is the rule so when you are in a group of people whether it's a family or a team or a, you know um, uh, uh, your work colleagues it's much more likely that you won't be thinking in a healthy forward-thinking constructive positive way whereas as an individual stepping back out of that it's much more likely that you will be thinking in a constructive and positive way. So it's more likely that psychic entropy is present in groups than in the individual. But Michele might disagree with that. (laughs)
1: Um, And I've highlighted this bit because it starts with the word feedback, and I know it's one of your favourite things. I love a bit of feedback. Feedback is also crucial to determine whether family goals are being achieved. He gives quite amusing examples of family goals quite quaint. Go on then. He gives an an example of a couple. Rick and Erica. Rick Uh. wants to go to a motocross race and Erica would like to go to the aquarium. Uh It should be possible for everyone to watch the race one weekend and then visit the aquarium the next. The beauty of such an arrangement is that Erica is likely to enjoy some of the aspects of bike racing and Rick might actually get to appreciate looking at fish even though neither would have discovered as much if left to his or her own prejudices. I just found that very amusing. It's about sort of like wonderful simplification of quite a basic bit of uh, pop uh, psychology advice that our listener wishes we'd stick to and not get off on topics of free will that we don't know enough about.
0: We don't know enough about.
1: Um, Because
0: how dare someone talk about a topic that they are not at the top of the educational ladder how dare they talk about that
1: they haven't matched their ability with their challenge no. they've, they've leapfrogged that they're above their station yeah. with, on that float they're trying to uh, get to the top of the flow ladder when they haven't taken responsibility for climbing up all the other steps yeah. in the meantime um, I mean, I, you know I, st- I still feel like a bit of a twat from that feedback still hurts uh, he also talks about kicking new life into tired relationships. In terms of fa- family. Kicking
0: new life. Let's,
1: this, I'm gonna,
0: <laughs> when my other half gets back home, I'm going to kick a bit of life into this, <laughs> this
1: relationship. <laughs> And if I, and if I don't kick, I might be kicked. But not just romantic relationships. Fam- we're still on family here. So he says, what, oh, most, sorry. what most parents do, there's a whole page of a family going wrong. <laughs> and he says, <laughs> "So it's like actually, what I've written in the, in the margin of this is... Family's going wrong. Sounds it sounds familiar. like a quiz show,
0: a new <laughs> quiz show. Families going wrong.
1: <laughs> and you know, I've told the story of how my dad thought that all children were perfect until they're seven and then yes. they just go off the rails. Yes. And that's basically what this page of the chapter is. But I didn't want to go on. I didn't want to go awkwardly reversing up that alley because I feel like we've talked about the idea that my my dad thought that I, like all children, was perfect up until seven and then off the rails after that, no longer in his control or no longer pure, starting he started to have what he perceived to be free will, and that that was just a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. And that's what Mickley talks about in the, on this page. And it's What most parents do at that point is to politely ignore their children's lives. I was going to substitute children for teenager there. But pretending that everything is all right, hoping against hope that it will be. And he's saying that you shouldn't do that. You should adjust your goals to match them. So instead of expecting a 14 or 15, 16-year-old teenager to still enjoy... Colouring books and oh, right. games of Scrabble God. and trips to the zoo yeah. when what they actually want is, I don't know, big tits or ass porn. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, stop. Just backtrack a little bit, James. What the fuck? Well, isn't a teenager has new. Drives and in interests pu- and interests. Yes. Th- in puberty, that- so
0: they might want rock and roll music <laughs> and, to, and to stay out until eleven o'clock with their mates, and they might not want to go to the cinema with their parents. Yeah. Yes.
1: Okay. And the and the book suggests that parents should adjust the family goals to match the development of the teenager, <laughs> and not just expect that the teenager will still enjoy that game of Scrabble on a Sunday afternoon and feel. Disillusioned and disheartened that a pure era is coming to an end and they've created a monster and this grotesque teenager is sliding into decline. Yes, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. Parents should be more realistic about what the teenage years are and actually be a bit more accommodating of, was it, did you call it Big Tits Weekly? (laughs) What did you call it? (laughs) Other magazines are available.
1: Um, we're going to get on to... We, we, you know, we're still we are
0: We are now, we are zooming through after a very slow hour and a half. We are zooming through these topics. What do we got
1: next? I was about to say the opposite. We're still on family. We haven't got onto friends yet. So I am zooming through family. Oh. And there's a bit where he talks, which is quite interesting, but I think it, maybe this is for another, another, just another podcast, where they talk... Well, no, not another podcast because it's one of my personal obsessions. So very much this one, but another day. He talks about... Uh, geography and architecture and how it influences the family. So he talks about suburbia and how that affects an adolescent's development and their ability to find flow activities. So, for example, if you are a teenager and you live in a boring suburb that's essentially geared up for the pleasure and utility of the parents who buy the house and therefore have the power, the spending power, that makes the capitalist wheels turn... um, If you're the teenager and the the, the suburbia is not built for you, so there are not, uh, what's a cliche, skate parks. There are not, thanks for that, Dan has just crossed off something that we were going to uh, have in the episode. Youth centres. Youth centres, yes, because that requires, um, you know, socialism, whereas capitalism, no one stands to make money out of running a teenage youth centre where a teenager only has, uh, you know, wants it all for free. Because uh-huh. the teenager doesn't have money, so suburbia is set up for the parents. Is, is... that's kind of what he's saying? huh.
0: Um, and what about this? 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 Um, I mean, I live. I think in an example of where the uh, utility is it of the of the uh, the estate is set up for families. There's a, a grassy area, there's a community centre, there is a small outdoor gym, there's a, a field for the kids to play in, there's a mini allotment, There are the roads are mostly pedestrian, there are small squares where people can meet. So he's talking about that being a useful way of thinking to bring communities together, bring people together for shared and common goals
1: to create a flow environment? Yes, I think you could say that that would be more conducive to flow than purely organising... Suburbs of cities around the functionality of how to get an SUV onto a, a private a, driveway. Onto a private driveway, yeah. Yep. Got ya. um We're we're one page away from friends. Whoa. Okay. Okay. And I don't mean the. You know, like which friend are you? I'm Rachel. Yeah, you're uh, not Rachel, though, are you? Who were you?
0: You were Mike,
1: with you? <laughs>
0: you were one of many boyfriends that was in maybe two episodes. I was Phoebe.
1: Oh, so I was your boyfriend?
0: Yeah, only for a couple of episodes.
1: Okay. Well, there's a page that's kind of relevant to attachment theory, but do you want to talk about attachment theory? Well, and-
0: if you refer back to previous episodes in season four, there's lots of bits and pieces where we uh, sorry, moments where we talk about uh, attachment theory. So I, I think we'll probably leave that. But we will come back to attachment theory again because it's such an interesting, complex and diverse topic. I think it definitely warrants a, a, an
1: episode all to itself. OK, so coming up just around the corner, we're seconds away from this, is How to Be a Funky Dude. Funky dudes! Trailed now three times. Um, so, enjoying friends... Wait, is that what he calls it? It's not no, he... I've called it How to Be a Funky Dude. What does dude. he
0: call it? Oh, no, we'll get to that. Sorry, James, you've still got one page before Funky
1: Dude. (laughs) Uh, So he talks about the difference between friends who provide complexity and friends who do not provide complexity. And he gives the example of socialising in the pub after work being a predictable environment. People say the same things over and over again. No one, there's no real challenge. No one provides a challenge. No one increases the challenge to create complexity it's rep- you're all at basically the first rung of the complexity ladder and you never move up because everything is predictable everyone gets stuck in a rut People tell the same jokes. People get stuck into... I feel, I feel like I was basically in kind of social complacency before I went to France. And one aspect of my social complacency really upset one of the Jameses before I went away. Mm-hmm. And that was my sort of like default role of playing the fool and just sort of like... Creating situations where someone's, you know, embarrassed or whatever. And the only purpose of that was for me to play the role of the funny person.
0: Your own personal lol.
1: Yes. Yeah. Or not just for me to laugh, but for it to be funny for the group at Mm. someone's expense. And was it though? And um, it was sort of like the expectation that that person should just take it on the chin because I'm a divine only child and they should understand that I Mm. wasn't trying to upset them. I was just trying to bring joy to the rest of the group and Mm. they should just put up with the personal expense Mm -hmm. for the joy of the masses that I provide uh, as wonderful, funny James Um, So that was one of the things that I tried to deal with uh, a year ago. Uh But that's an example of complacency whereby I just automatically turn everything into a joke. I just automatically play the fool. Don't take anything seriously. Um, Don't take any responsibility for anything. (laughs) I think that has played a large part in my life in the past. And I try to maintain a lot of playfulness and silliness and not take life too seriously... Um, I'm basically writing my dating profile now, aren't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I? Haven't. I don't take life too seriously. I try to maintain an element of fun, but I'm really careful about other people's feelings.
0: I wouldn't say I was sensitive, but I am sensitive to others. James, 32, Southwest.
1: Uh, um. <laughs> Full of personal lols. But yes, people who don't provide complexity, mm. it says in the book... Uh, you know who you are. It's, he says, Actually,
0: they probably don't know who they are.
1: No, probably not. And I mean, he says the that, sad thing. that the pub where the drinking buddies, he calls them in quotes, get together. Uh, <laughs> and there's a whole paragraph where he's basically you know critical from his lofty position. Um, <laughs> he refers to them playing cards or darts i think he i think we know that he's the middle class person looking down at the narrativized habitus dart throwing working classes in that situation so it's not just me who is um who needs to read up on habitus and narrativization it's mickley chits and as well possibly i think so this type of interaction keeps at bay the disorganization that solitude brings to the passive mind, but without stimulating much growth. And then I like this. He says, it is rather like a collective form of television watching. (laughs) So it's basically... uh, And although it is more complex in that it requires participation, you're not just passively watching TV. You're going to the pub, you're chatting, you're buying the drink, you're playing the darts, you're doing all that. You are just um, mindlessly killing time, passing time to avoid the disorder of psychic entropy. You're letting a predictable external locus control your thoughts for a couple of hours, not to mention the alcohol controlling your mind.
0: You're switching off from complexity.
1: Yes, for a few hours before you come home, go to bed, get up in the morning with a hangover, go to work and are (laughs) passive-aggressive. There you go. Well summarized with a whole load with eight minutes of psychic entropy on the platform. Don't forget from yes, last don't week. Don't forget that um, the actions and phrases tend to be rigidly scripted and highly predictable. So, that, like the jokes are the same. The jokes are the same. Yeah. 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 So that is an example of a social situation that doesn't provide complexity. Mm-hmm. We've all been there. So let's move on to forming complexity. By means of becoming a Funky Dude. Oh,
0: Funky Dude is with us. I wish we had a little theme tune for Funky Dude. I'm quite excited to hear all about him.
1: So this is a teenager. Oh, the funkiest of all the dudes. Well, no, initially he's not funky. Oh, he's not. He's kind of, he's like, he's sort of like a, let's say he is an un... Popular or not not necessarily oh, horrifically, not necessarily horrifically bullied well't let's not forget that I was never bullied at school so I don't well, I wouldn't use myself as the example. Yes, sorry but he's, he doesn't feel like he's popular or popular enough yes and he wants to be more popular at school mm-hmm. at the typical American high school straight from a movie. Should we call him Chad Yes. So Chad decides to do something about it. He takes personal responsibility and he turns becoming a funky dude into a flow activity. So not only is he trying to increase the complexity of his social interactions.
0: This is is so many American films. I'm enjoying it. This is carry on. Go, go. So Chad, the funky dude. Not yet funky dude. The not yet funky dude. Um, He
1: creates a flow activity out of the process. This is a bit like psychoanalysis, being a flow activity to achieve the conditions of future flow, yeah. he is in the process of becoming a funky dude, turning that into a flow activity so that at the end of it, when he is more popular, he has a more complex social life. Who knows? Maybe he's, you know, homecoming, cheerleading, basketball. What are the things, what are the American cliches at the end of the the, the cathartic ending to the movie? Um,
0: like the kind of American version of head boy, basically. is yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Um, prom queen. He's the prom queen. That, that will provide more social complexity in his life than being excluded from social events because no one likes him or no one th- remembers him. <laughs> Is
0: really the example? He yes.
1: Gives. Wow. <laughs> oh, Oh, I forgot this. We're coming up to the sexy legs contest. <laughs> so... I think I just want to read this whole page basically. If the young person feels accepted and cared for, at her... oh no no no, this is, uh... is it... no this oh, is. God, you've lost it, haven't you? <laughs> well, oh, you were doing so well. Well, what this what this example does is combines. Is, still home Chad? Life. is this still chat? This is still Chad. All of this is Chad. Okay, so Chad is setting out to become the prom queen. Chad, who at 15 was a rather shy, quiet boy with glasses and few friends, as if. Glasses means well, that you won't have friends. Bookie, um, he's booky. He felt close enough to his parents to explain that he was tired. of... So that, that's why there was some previous context about um, attachment in the family and how neatly family and attachment theory leads on to yeah. uh, to this mm-hmm. bit. I could have done that in a very smooth you way, but didn't I didn't need to do that. Did you? Um, uh, close enough to his parents <clears> to explain <throat> that he was tired of being left out of the cliques in school and had decided to become more popular. To do so, Chad outlined a carefully planned strategy. He was to buy contact lenses, wear only funky clothes, so he does use the word funky, learn about the latest music and teenage fads, (laughs) and highlight his hair with a blonde dye. So (laughs) he's... And he
0: told his parents this.
1: Yeah, he worked it out with his parents over dinner, Mom, probably. Dad,
0: I really need to become more funky in school. OK, Chad, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to learn all about the latest teenage fads and rock music.
1: <laughs> and highlight my hair with a blonde dye. And this is a quote. I want to see if I can change my personality, he said. And spent many days in front of the mirror, practising a laid-back demeanour and goofy smile... <laughs>
0: James, that does sound like you, some
1: of the descriptions you've given me.
0: Uh, Like, you know, maybe like Sandy at the end of Greece.
1: I'm just going to keep reading this. This, I've already enjoyed reading this page twice or three times on my own. I'm going to gift it to you, the listener. And you can, this, if anything, is enough to persuade you to go out and buy the book and read it all yourself. It's this page. This methodical approach, supported by his parents' collusion, therefore the importance of Interaction with family to facilitate the conditions of flow. Just read
0: the fucking page, James.
1: (laughs) Well, well, by the end of the year, he was being invited into the best cliques. And (laughs) (laughs) And the following year, he won the part of Conrad Birdie in the school musical... Because he identified with the part of the rock star so well, he became the heartthrob of middle school girls who taped his picture inside their lockers. The senior yearbook showed him involved in all sorts of successful ventures, such as winning a prize in the sexy legs contest. (laughs) Bear in mind he's still 15 at this point. So, I don't know if the teachers awarded the the prize of sexiest legs. He had indeed succeeded in changing his outward personality and achieved control of the way his peers saw him. At the same time, the inner organisation of his self remained the same. He continued to be a sensitive, generous young man who did not think less of his peers, peers because, <laughs> Piers Morgan, uh, because he learned to manage their opinions or think too highly of himself for having succeeded at it. If you like what you've just heard, then the whole book is basically written in that style and it's a treat.
0: It's gold dust. So, Conrad Birdie was the main character in Bye Bye Birdie. I didn't know that.
1: Oh, thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. So, that pretty much takes us to the end of this week's episode. Or does it, James?
1: That's all I have to say. I wanted to end with uh, the sexy legs competition. You didn't react to that. I just made a sort of like pedo joke about underage kids and teachers awarding them sexy legs, as if that's acceptable. Well, it obviously was in the 80s.
0: <laughs> so, well, I mean no, I didn't react to it. No. For the listener, I'm going to leave it up to you to decide who was the antagonist today.
1: Except you're not really deciding because that tiniest of Russian dolls, the, the what we're calling James God of your brain has already James Brain God. James Brain God makes that decision for you and it's a type 1 Daniel Kahneman instant reaction, and you have no way of controlling that thought. Even if you do consciously set aside conscious space to indulge the type 2 thinking, you are still the puppet of your genetic programming, which ultimately eliminates the The free will as we believe that it exists in society in general. Excellent.
0: So from this week on the Private Practice Podcast, we have we, we really have we've gone everywhere. We've been to Brexit, we've been to Europe with James, we've been to James Brain God, we've been to Uh, The family, we've been to friends, we've been everywhere. We've been
1: to Dorothy's Island. Been to Dorothy's
0: Island. With her gnomes. Oh, Dottie's gnomes. We have been everywhere with this part two of the chapter. And I just only hope that you aren't too disappointed that no matter what you think, you will not be able to choose your own clothes tomorrow for work. So from me, Daniel P. Brown, in the London Private Practice Live-In Studio, it's a goodbye.
1: And it's goodbye from him.
0: And it's goodbye from me?
1: I'm just repeating the Morecambe and Wise jokes because... It was the two Ronnies, actually. The two Ronnies joke because I get the impression that a lot of people these days don't know any of that stuff. So you can just repeat, you can just recycle stuff from two Ronnies, Monty Python, Keeping Up Appearances, Only Fools and Horses. All those jokes are ripe to be repeated for the... What, for the generation below millennials, who yeah. just who don't know it and think that you're well, a comedy genius, yeah, and you mm, just it's just it's just come I think like that. A lot
0: of jokes on television are like that. I mean, a few weeks ago we nicked, um, and on that bombshell, which I'm pretty certain is Adam Partridge, and on that bombshell,
1: goodbye. Next week, by the way, sorry. Just, uh, Next week we're looking at chaos. (laughs) Fucking brilliant.